Carl. I'm Afi. I'm August. And I'm Jess. Welcome back to The Periphery. This week, we talked to Stephen Keynes, who is the Deputy Chief Innovation Officer at the Mayor's Office of Technology and Innovation in San Jose. Also, my former boss, also retired DJ. <laughs> I would say that I come from a musical family. Although my parents don't play instruments, all my siblings play at least two. I went a little bit crazy with it and did four. When I got to college, I really kind of got into DJing, mainly because I would sometimes go to events and the music would be so bad, it would ruin my time. So I was like, I felt like I could do this better. And it really just started for that purpose, but I started getting pretty good. I always try to think, what is my end game? I realized that a lot of things can turn into 20 year journeys if you don't know when to stop. And so I always had this weird line in my head. I was like, hey, when will I know to like stop and reevaluate? Do I want to continue doing this? And I just wanted to play for like a crowd as far as my eye could see. And it seems a little bit ambiguous or vague, but, you know, I was able to open for T-Pain in 2015 and that was like my largest show. I kind of like took a pause after that and I was like, you know, do I need to continue doing this? But, you know, I'm very happy in my career now. You know, the music industry is definitely not one of the easiest things out there, especially sustaining a career over decades. So I think I made the right choice, but I definitely miss it sometimes. So yet again, we have another technologist or a person working in tech. I guess he does have more of a kind of a technical background in some respects. He at least has an understanding of the technology as he was like talking about how that can help your communication skills in these realms where you're talking to a bunch of engineers, computer scientists. But as always, <laughs> more and more, it seems very clear the technical skills are additive, not necessary. You don't need to learn how to code to essentially participate in tech policy of this entire ecosystem. I think the one thing it does offer you, though, is a small peek into the brain of a programmer and how they attempt and attack problems. And I think that once you start to understand that, even if you can't make full-scale applications by yourself, it allows you to be a better communicator and be able to translate your ideas, anticipate what type of questions or concerns that they might have. I think at like a core level, I've always been kind of a tinkerer. My dad and I used to build model airplanes and fly them a lot. And my parents were very religious. And so I actually grew up in the church and my parents joined the AV ministry when I was 12. So ever since I was like 13, 14, I was learning how to like run cameras, edit a switchboard, edit video. And that really kind of gave me that first like, oh, you know, I could do this. Like, you know what I mean? In that sense. One of Steven's technical skills, I think, is being young. He's about our age, a little bit older. He's experienced a lot of these uh, recent collisions between our social institutions and our political institutions. He mentioned the 2016 election, which was a major inflection point for him in his Tw career. 2016 election comes up a lot <laughs> when yeah. it comes to yeah. like people who got called to technology. Yeah, it seems like it was like a mass trauma event. I guess if we could turn back the clocks a little bit, I started law school in 2016 at the University of Miami to not get super political, but that was the year of a presidential election that was extremely contentious. And a lot of kind of traditional institutions that I saw were suddenly really threatened. And, you know, I started realizing how frail a lot of these institutions are within the U.S. And I realized that also just being a minority legal professional, I felt that there was like a more obligation essentially to take part in public interest. I think in our in our very first episode, wasn't that what you mentioned as yeah. what first brought you into the technology space? That's right. We had the privacy episode where we all were discussing our reasons why we cared about privacy. Mm -hmm. That, of course, that event that kind of long process really is the first thing that came to mind and made me have like a reason to go to law school. And it was the same for Stephen. And so he was experiencing all these things kind of through the same lens that we are. And I think that kind of experience, it's not exactly technical. It's understanding that there's a lot of ramifications. And, you know, it's really telling that he didn't go straight to a tech company. 
He first started working with the local government in Miami. I worked for the Legal Service of Greater Miami. My initial project was helping them expand their online intake system to essentially be able to accept applications from other jurisdictions. And so the Legal Service of Greater Miami is one of the biggest legal aids in all of Florida. And they'd won a lot of grant money to essentially build an online intake system based there, but could you could essentially forward cases. And so I helped do that. And then they kept me on for the entire year. And so I help with other things like bringing text messaging to the case management software. So that essentially allows you to reduce that whole game of phone tag with your lawyer. And it also maintains a log in the case management file. So that's kind of how I got my toes, I guess, into tech law. And then, you know, I was able to spin that into a fellowship right after graduating. And now I work for the mayor's office. Making services more efficient, bringing this technical almost Silicon Valley-like mindset to policy problems, realizing that they weren't really there in Miami, they didn't really understand those issues, and he looked around to where's the city, where's the place that sees these problems the same way that he does, and then he finds himself in San Jose. I realized early on, I met this big law attorney, maybe in my 1L year, and I was just asking him for just advice, and he was like, if you're ever in a place in your career where you feel like you're pushing a boulder up a hill and you're hitting a lot of friction, just find a new pond efficient. It's like, it's not worth it to push the boulder all the way up the hill, and you might get crushed in the process. And I remember when I heard him say that at the time, I didn't fully get the context of what he was saying. But reflecting on that, when I was in Miami, for instance, I would tell people I was doing legal technology, and they just give me like a blank stare. And like, even within some institutions I'd work in, people would come up and be like, hey, can you help me reset my Gmail? And they couldn't disentangle IT from legal tech. And so it made me realize that at the time, at least, some places are better to do civic innovation than others. And so when I looked at San Jose specifically, I saw year after year, they were awarded the most innovative city. I saw that there were a lot of really innovative projects that they were doing. And so I was like, okay, if I am going to dive into government, I'm not going to go into some place that just started doing civic tech. I'm going to go to a place with a strong track record of it that has been recognized and is very visible about their activities. And so while, yes, government is traditionally viewed as a little bit conservative, old, buttoned up, I was really encouraged by not only the few people that I had met that were already working at the office, but also just the body of work that they'd produce. And I was like, I know that I can come onto this team and contribute meaningfully, given that there's already been that momentum. And I didn't feel like I was breaking ground as someone who had just gotten out of law school. He goes to law school. And what I found interesting also, and what I think has been a recurring theme throughout the podcast is that although law and going to law school can teach you a lot of valuable tools to address some of the legal and social dimensions of technology, he also was talking about the limits of just direct client service. If you're just working for one specific client, you're of course bound by the demands of that client. And you're primarily just an advocate for that client rather than someone who's seeking broader social transformation per se. My first summer, I actually interned doing juvenile delinquency defense. And so for my non-lawyer audience, that's essentially representing children charged with crimes in Miami-Dade. And that was very eye-opening. I knew beforehand criminal law was going to be a little bit intense and probably not the right thing for me. Working with children made everything 10x, and it made me realize that people in general have trouble understanding consequences. But while that was a very rewarding summer in terms of being introduced to what is a trial, like, what is it like going in front of a judge multiple times a week? And while that was very helpful, you know, it made me realize the limitations of direct client service. And I found that even if we got a favorable outcome for a client, there would still be another issue, whether that be food instability, whether it be parents were working too many jobs to adequately take care of them. And I realized that for me personally, to feel fulfilled, I would need to do something systemic. If I don't want to be directly on the front lines providing direct service, how can I help the people that are on the front lines do that? And so I started looking for ways to blend technology and the law, and it led me to some really interesting 
interesting places like working with the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, which is a nonprofit that combats cyber sexual harassment, but then also being an Access to Justice Technology Fellow, which is a fellowship program that places law students in legal aid and public interest organizations to help them do micro and macro process changes. Okay, direct services, maybe not for him. He has a more systemic view of these types of issues. And I think when you have a systems view of these issues, there are two options. There's corporations that are deeply embedded and influential in these systems, and there's government. And he spoke about why he is more committed to public service. And there was kind of two factors to it that I kind of related to. One, it was that growing up, public service was kind of an element of his upbringing. And at the same time, he noted how he did not really feel comfortable in corporate settings in a way that I relate to, especially when, okay, you all will call me out because I've been corporate on my resume in many different ways. Office worked for like 10 corporations. (laughs) Before I took my first role at a corporation in undergrad, I really thought of myself as not being in that realm. And I think part of that was a discomfort that I had. Like thinking back, I'm kind of grateful that, you know, I got the opportunity to work in a corporation because for all the flack that especially big corporations get, they're a part of this ecosystem and just part of the broader system. They're very influential, as I was saying. And we need people who feel comfortable in these spaces as well, who I think feel comfortable with their affinities, with their allegiances, to push these corporations in a way that operate and behave and lobby for policies for the betterment of everyone. Corporations need to be democratized as well. But it was kind of interesting hearing him say how he felt uncomfortable or maybe just the comfort levels he felt, relatively speaking, to working in public service. It was clear that I was higher in public service. Coming out of law school, especially for my short career, like professional life, I've already kind of seen myself as a public servant. And so at the time, I just didn't feel comfortable, frankly, with going straight to a Fang company. Fang, referring to Facebook before the name change, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google. But I knew that I wanted to do tech. And I remember before I even saw the job listing for this job, I was asked to be on the Digital Privacy Advisory Task Force for the city, an external group of professionals and industry leaders and academics who just advise the city on certain internal matters. And I felt comfortable. Like, it's always a little bit of that imposter syndrome whenever you join a board of people that are, like, significantly older than you in that sense. But, you know, as soon as the conversations got flowing, I was like, oh, I do have things to say that are worthwhile here, and I do belong here. I think that was, like, my first peak. But when I read the job description, and originally I came in as a senior advisor, I was just promoted to deputy chief innovation officer in January. But in my initial role, when I read that job description, I almost got chills. I was like, oh, this is exactly me. And I felt like at the time, there's only a handful of people probably on the West Coast that could do this exact specific job, as well as all of the soft details that come with that being a staffer, essentially. So I always get excited by things that are not only unique opportunities, but things I feel I'm one of the few select candidates that can do it. And, you know, I, I apologize to anyone that, that sounds arrogant, but I think that when you know your skill set, then you can see things in the world that clearly resonate with you and you feel more confident about going there and saying like, yo, I actually deserve to interview for this job or be considered for it. It's a key attribute to success. I mean, lesson to the periphery. If you see yourself in it, send it. And I don't think it's arrogant at all. And I also want to echo the importance of the soft skills because you are technically very impressive, but also the way that you conducted the internship that I was a part of was one of the most welcoming, collaborative groups that I've been a part of. And I think people are going to be encouraged to work more in government spaces when they feel like they have a voice and they feel like everything's not 
extremely buttoned up or extremely serious. So I think that I want to reassure you that you don't sound arrogant. You're just being realistic and candid. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jessica. I really appreciate that. I've enjoyed you being a part of the team so much as well. To the point at the periphery and feeling marginalized and feeling excluded. Thinking about Ella, I'm thinking about a lot of our other guests who have kind of expressed the discomfort, maybe not so much with where they work, but also just the subject matter which they engage with. So much of that has to do with confidence and comfort. It's so hard to really imagine yourself having careers in certain realms or having an influence or being able to really kill it when you don't have that confidence or you really don't have that imagination that this is for you as well. You can step into here and you can have an impact. And obviously he's having a pretty big impact in the San Jose's office, but it was pretty relatable for me to hear his discomfort and also made me to kind of reflect on why it's not lost on me that for myself, I feel very comfortable in these settings. And that's definitely due to the fact that I've just had opportunities to insert myself and kind of realize that there's a role for me there as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think he was able to overcome those discomforts, these barriers that he saw in different kinds of work environments. And there was a virtuous circle where he recognized that he wanted to be engaged in these things and he was confident and able to do it. And then he learned things that made him actually very unique and valuable. And then he recognized that there are certain opportunities that are not only unique, but he's one of the few candidates who can actually do it because he's actually had experience with these issues. And over time, he was able to teach us things. For example, when we were talking to him about what should be the role of tech companies in managing complex digital technologies that have the power to harm people, he posed us with a question, a question that we are adding to the periphery toolbox, which is, if tech can't be ethically created, can we justify its use in any situation? I guess from a more logistical standpoint, really understand how the tool is made and what discussions went on at the beginning. So, you know, I think with facial recognition, when I talk about it, I often categorize harms as immediate harms, which is your misidentifications and your false accusations. I talk about the due process issues that have arisen in certain cases, like the state of Florida, Beach, Willie Lynch, where we just do not have the evidentiary rules yet, in my humble opinion, <laughs> to meaningfully be able to address the accuracy and the ethics of these different technologies. And then finally, the surveillance state. One kind of thing that I bring up and people seem to process a little bit is if a technology cannot be ethically created, can you justify its use? Facial recognition is innately being created with millions of privacy violations by people not consenting for their photo being used for that use. Can we honestly say that it should be used? And that's a different question from, is it accurate? Is it biased? Is it whatever? I'm just arguing that if you can't build an ethical machine, maybe you shouldn't build it in the first place. And so really getting to the heart of how that tool is created, not just saying, oh, we bought this, so therefore it's legal and it's all good. I think that's another major conversation that corporations can have in-house. Like what were originally trying to do? How does this tool currently perform and who does it impact? implying that those ethical standards can go beyond just what is currently legal because he ultimately was suggesting that even if a tool was created in a completely legal manner it might still not be ethical and then there's the interesting question who ultimately becomes the arbiter of what's ethical and a lot of these companies this is also just a topic that came up in the symposium that august led 
The great um, symposium. Very Thank impressive. Um, Whereas Stephen was, Steven was one of the speakers. You know, they some of these companies, I think, including Google, they have not only a legal department that is dealing with what is legal, what isn't, and what are the ramifications of doing certain things in purely legal terms, but then they're also hiring more abstract thinkers that are dealing with tech ethics. So there are mm-hmm. different functions being created here, and and the two don't always align perfectly. Yeah, you know that panel that Stephen was on. It was a part of a broader symposium that I had helped to plan with the Stanford Technology Law Review. And Jess is actually also involved in that uh, uh, publication. publication. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but uh, that particular panel was, the topic was called AI governance. And actually, I think that's really suited for what we're talking about here. Because we're talking about just how do you start making rules to govern AI or other very complex technologies that involve advanced computing. Where do those rules come from and when should we best apply them? Stephen recognized from his perspective in a municipal government that there are just these very basic skills that you need. He gave that example of the online intake system in Miami. They were in several different languages. One of them was Creole to serve the Haitian community. And he realized that the usage for Haitians was extremely low and he didn't really know why. To go back to something that Jessica just said like about emotional intelligence and cultural intelligence, I think that that alone gets you like a third of the way there, frankly. There's a lot of things that are just about interacting with different groups of people that if you weren't aware of them, you'd approach the situation differently. To go back to that online intake system, when we first instituted it, it was in English, it was in Creole, which is for Haitians, and then it was in Spanish. So what was interesting is when we were looking at the metrics of use, the English and the Spanish ones were rising fairly high, people discovering the site, using it all good, right? But then a lot of the Creole pathway that we built was not really being utilized at all. It was flatlined at the time. And I like, I remember mentioning to my supervisor, I was like, hey, isn't it kind of weird that this isn't being utilized? And like, she like smirked at me and told me like, oh, go, go talk to some paralegals. And after speaking to a few paralegals, and I was just asking about what are the ways in which this community likes to communicate, she relayed to me that in a lot of Haitian culture, they typically like to do business face-to-face or over the phone, right? And it comes down to just certain elements of trust in that community. And that therefore, that paralegal felt that they would not feel comfortable using an online intake system that doesn't have like a clear person at the end of it. They're a little bit hesitant about it. And I remember when she explained that to me and then I looked into it more, I was like, that actually makes sense. Had I not spoken to you, I probably would have banged my head against the wall and assumed that it was something I had done or the translations were wrong. But I think that number one, having a, a deep cultural understanding of the people you're trying to serve, not looking at people as one large cohesive body, I think is, is really important. And the only reason he was able to find out why was by speaking to people on the ground, clerks and other people who were familiar with that community in Miami, to realize that there was a general general cultural norm of insisting on face-to-face interactions with systems, that if there wasn't a face-to-face interface, then there wasn't going to be trust in the system, even though it was in their language. And he would not never have had that information. He would have thought there was either something wrong that he'd done on his end or there was something wrong with the technology. And so it's very important for him, whether you're a company or a local government or the federal government or a transnational policymaking body, to not view people as a homogenous monolith, to make sure that you're constantly getting new cultural information about how people view these tools, what they think about how they're made. Yeah, and that that nuanced understanding of who you're serving, I think, reminded us all of our conversation that we had with Vivian, which we hadn't put online, but I think we want to include a clip in here. ICANN stands for International Children Assistance Network. 
I am the marketing supervisor and funds development team leader. So primarily we work with Vietnamese families here in the Bay Area, but we also send aid over to Vietnam. And with COVID, everything has been moved online. There were a lot of government supplements that you could apply for, but you could only apply for online. And a lot of times it would also only be in English. So even if they knew how to access it, they didn't know how to read it. So we had a couple of clients, unfortunately, where they didn't know about the eviction moratorium until it was too late. There's only so much that you can do because especially before, ICANN was a face-to-face -face community where parents and elderly would come to the Family Resource Center to receive help or ask for help. A lot of parents just don't know how to navigate Zoom and like the basics of those. There's also been a lot of misinformation about how technology can listen to what you do, which is in some ways true and not, but they're more concerned that the Chinese government is listening to them and that communism is going to take over. So there's a lot of that. There's also like the whole thing of North Vietnam versus South Vietnam. So even when we're spreading information online, we have to be careful about our wording because there's a difference between the South Vietnamese dialect and the common Vietnamese that you would see in Vietnam right now, because that is after communism. I think the biggest thing to start with is that language barrier. Acknowledging that there are different dialects. Mandarin is considered the main dialect for Chinese, but there's also Cantonese, there's Hokkien, there's Bukien, there's Diu. There's a lot of different dialects just within that language. Imagine how many dialects there are in the world in general. And we're limiting all the people who could be using the internet as a resource because they can't even read it. Asian communities are more likely to be living in an intergenerational household. So while we're posting on Facebook or Instagram or on our website, we were reaching out to the younger generation to educate their older generation. If we had a free vaccination clinic that was happening within the weekend or something, we would post something on our Facebook and tell people, take them down. You don't even have to register. You can just go there, show up and see if you can get the shot. And we saw a lot of people actually like bring their grandparents. Bring in a trusted source. Into exactly. It really brings to bear the reason why Stephen was perfect for the job that he found. It wasn't just that he had the technical background, but it's because he was willing to put the time and energy into really understanding the needs of different members of the community. Like you said, like not serving a monolith. And I think, frankly, that's what makes government work more interesting, I think, than corporate work, which is that when you are in a corporate position, you just need to serve the shareholders. Like that's your number. Carl, Carl and I know from corporations, that's like your only job. <laughs> you open yourself up to liability when you don't serve those shareholders. Like yeah. you really have no choice. To be clear, you know, Stephen, he's, he's at the city level. This is a very different kind of situation than when you're dealing with national lobbying groups. He has this very intimate look at I think what he called a much smaller regulatory surface area. And he's also just much more tuned to different kinds of needs. And he's able to use government, local government, as a sandbox in a very creative sense, very Silicon Valley. Before I started this role, I primarily just saw government as a regulator. I saw it as the person in the room to say no, the adult in the room. Now that I'm in this role, I would also see government as an enabler and also just a platform in which you can do pilots that also bring benefit to the overall city. Think about all the miles that have probably been traveled with full self-driving, and a lot of that material is proprietary, but it was created using public roads. Someone pointed that out to me in a meeting the other day. They're like, isn't it wild that people are using city services, but we never see any of this data, we never get the benefit of it? And I thought that, that was a very funny observation. In terms of what can government do as technology, I think that a very sound 
risk tolerance. You can start to wager into some areas and you can really do some really interesting pilots. For one, he talked about crypto mining for citizens using a little tiny bit of their internet to mine and that's funding for the city. This one we have going is uh, with this company called Helium. They are a company that makes these low around sensors. So low around is, and forgive me, I'm going to butcher this acronym. I think it's low object wide range area network. It's a proof of stake network. They have their own coin and everything. What's really interesting about this is that we place these mining devices in the homes of certain San Jose residents that volunteer for this program. It uses one megabit of internet to turn cryptocurrency, and then we can use that money for digital inclusion efforts. That's one way of neighbors helping neighbors. And, you know, I think that a lot of governments are very hesitant to the Web3 space. And frankly, I think they should be. I don't think that this specific project could be replicated by others because the saturation has gotten really high of these sensors. So the revenue you're getting per mining device has significantly dipped. But I think that that was one good use of Web3 and crypto. That's one way I think that government can really interact with innovation. It's being that platform for the people and also being able to direct at least some of these innovations to the people that need it most. This is all very much in line with where he began, which was indirect services for children. And he's realizing as great as and important as direct services are, technology has the power to make these services both higher quality and more systematically distributed. That's the mission of Codex, the Institute for Legal Informatics that he was a fellow at. It's all about thinking about how to automate the services that people need in a way that doesn't take away a lot of the valuable mechanisms, tools, and norms that we've used to make sure that those services are actually useful, genuine, and effective for people. That all speaks to kind of the role of government, how his first perception being the government as the parents in the room, you know, they say no, whereas now it kind of has more nuanced view where the government can be an enabler to kind of incentivize the trajectory of innovation. People don't really like sit and consider. Everything feels inevitable, but it's not. It takes a lot of advocacy from business folk, from policy folk, and from just consumers, really, by the value of the dollar. That really pushes innovation. I thought another cool part about the conversation was when we started talking about channels of radicalization online, whether it's pockets of extremism or just the slippery slope that is trolls online. (laughs) And he had, I thought, a good anecdote about how he kind of thinks about engaging with that content in those communities. If there is something too that you see in the world that you want to address, I would say make that move. But after that, just shut it down and move on with your life. To give you an example, something I saw last time I was on break, I saw something that literally made me like physically ill to look at. So it was on OpenSea. Someone had created an NFT collection called Floydies, and they made a bunch of these cartoon characters of George Floyd wearing a cloud nose and all these other things, and they were selling it. And they're like, oh, like what's funny is, If you were just an NLP algorithm reading the caption, you would assume this is a left-leaning post because they said things like BLM, but they're clearly being extremely cheeky about it. And so I remember at the time I was like, should I use my platform and my position essentially to like try to do something? I went back and forth between like, is this the right thing to do? I'm also on vacation, right? This is the time when you're supposed to let go, literally just de-stress, not look at emails, not do all of this. But I don't know, it just kept nagging me because I thought about people that were seeing that and probably had no relative power. What I did, not that I'm insanely high a person, but you do have a platform. Some people listen to me at times. So I just wrote two quick LinkedIn messages to some people that were in their C-suite and I just called it a day. You know, I remember thinking, oh, am I not engaging with something difficult? Just sending those messages and not checking back or whatever. But two weeks later, it was removed. And I remember thinking, had I worried about it every day to the same extent I did when I found that, I would not have gotten any work done. It would have ruined my break and it would have destroyed my soul in that sense, which is exactly what some groups are trying to do. And so really just don't let them take your joy, man. That's that's really, you know, that's that's what I would say. Another tool, we got two tools from Stephen this episode, Mm -hmm. Uh, but another tool he kind of proposed, which aligns a lot with Nora's general framework. When you asked uh, Nora, how should teens or kids, your parent, engage with these platforms? 
And he was saying, what is the purpose of this content? When I think about what is the purpose of some of this content, it is to distract you. It is to like break your will in a sense, but it's also meant to reshape your perception into what should I devote my energy to? What can I change? What can I not change? And so I think that really starting to think about what is all the media or content that I've devoured today? And if I had to put them in a box, where would each one go? And if there is something that you think is on that line, maybe try to diminish your time with it or reduce the amount of interaction that you have with it and try to go that route is how I would potentially do it. But I think that conscious consumption of content is the only way that you beat this animal. Because if you just take everything in, you're going to get really sad, frustrated, and just really lose your way. And you're not going to be able to wake up and fight the battles that really need to be fought. And I think that's also a really helpful framework, primarily because I feel like it's so easy not to critically examine, especially on platforms like TikTok and Twitter and Facebook, maybe less so YouTube, where it's less intentioned what you interact with but you just receive it based on algorithms, based on whom, whom you follow. And taking a step back and just really critically assessing, why am I getting this content? What is the purpose of this? Is this really the content, even if it's funny, even if I find it like kind of entertaining, is this the type of content I want to engage with and the type of communities that I want to be into at the jump because of the effects that I can have and just pushing you into an ecosystem. I mean, when I first got on TikTok, the, the amount of problematic content I was on, partially because it was shocking. I would be so shocked that people are saying this and I'd have to send it to friends and I'd have to send these people. But in that process, now I'm seeing way more of this type of content. And now I find how I'm viewing the world, it's different. I, you know, maybe I'm more problematic in this way or problematic in that way, or I feel more comfortable saying something that, okay, has a million likes, but that's nothing really in the grand scheme of how many people there are. And it just normalizes types of attitudes or ideas or behaviors that don't really comport with who I identify as. Yeah. When you think about like the idea of going viral in and of itself, by definition, things that go viral are outside the zeitgeist, right? They're like something strange that garners attention. And then by virtue of going viral, they are like swept up into the culture. It's like we're constantly adopting and accepting this just like weird, I mean, peripheral, I guess is a good word, just like peripheral, weird, non-mainstream, but also kind of illogical and absurd content that just like gets your attention and it's weird and you can't understand it. And so you watch it again and you watch it again and everybody watches it five times and now it's viral and now it's like a thing. One of the main identifiers of QAnon or like the ultra-right movement in that sense. Obviously, this is things like the Red Hat. There's the Let's Go Brandon people. But then there's also weird cultural things like Pepe the Frog. Remember when there was like a two-year debate yes. as to whether oh, is totally. Pepe the Frog a, be, you know, it, a racist it became, dog a, it became another signifier of I'm on this team. This is my Pepe Frog. <laughs> definitely. And, and I think that while I definitely agree that there are certain points that are meant to distract and entice certain minority groups and really just be inflammatory, I think it also serves the purpose, though, of giving humor sometimes where humor does not accurately belong. If you talk about the right-wing pipeline, you start with Ben Shapiro, then you go to Crowder, then you end up with Jordan Peterson or that other guy. And I'm probably getting those a little bit out of order. But I always found those arguments very interesting in the sense that there is a weird little slide that puts you in a certain direction. If you start laughing at certain content a lot, start following certain people who at the surface, you might be like, oh, they're just, these are just edgy people. They're meme lords, whatever. This is completely harmless, good fun. And then all of a sudden you look around and you're surrounded by white nationalists. It is meant to slowly progress you into taking things that are serious or actual problems, trivializing them, making it a joke. Our conversation really switched to radicalization. And in fact, Stephen had studied disinformation and radicalization very early on. And a lot of this has to do with what we as 
people who are using technology and people who also want to change how it's used and how it affects people, what's the limits of what we can do? One of them is this conscious consumption. How do you classify the things that you're seeing as either humorous or otherwise? I personally am a huge fan of YouTube and YouTube videos. Oh, August and I, we have some interesting, yeah. we have some interesting channels that we're watching right now. We can highly recommend Atlas Pro. Are we, is he our sponsor now? Specifically <laughs> his video on penguins and why there are no penguins uh, yeah, yeah. on the North Pole and how there used to be a great auk um, that was kind of like a pseudo penguin but unfortunately went extinct it did this is a fascinating story but like if you go on to my <laughs> youtube page you'll just see uh, a you guys lot. are so such dorks <laughs> <laughs> you'll see a lot of stuff about yeah penguins and great auks about island dwarfism and island gig gigantism yeah very, very interesting phenomena uh planetary geography uh just random stuff that is really nerdy and fascinating. And I'm like, well, you are a Stanford law student, you know? Yeah. Many nerds here. Yeah. Not so, me, though. I'm cool. And like, Stephen described this process in pretty funny terms, but it also just shows how abrupt it can be. Or you just laugh at some disinformation. You think it's a meme. You think it's kind of hilarious. And all of a sudden, everyone in your online environment is a white nationalist. And that, it, it's hard to, I actually didn't have a point here. I was just wanting to express what my YouTube page is. Okay, before we close out, <laughs> there's two things. One, there's some law or some principle that someone has, like, theorized that, like, the, the Hitler thing? Every, yeah, like every single like online discussion at some point will invoke Nazis, not like Nazism. Yeah, what's the little uh, Yeah. But, you know, whatever that is. Okay, little add in from the editor here. I looked it up. It's Godwin's Law that as a discussion on the internet grows longer, the likelihood of a person being compared to Hitler or another Nazi reference increases. But Wikipedia said that a Harvard study said that it's not inevitable that online discourse will disintegrate into reductio ad Hitlerum. Although invoking such topics tends to lengthen the conversation. But I think this also kind of relates to the anecdote that Stephen's dad told him, weirdly enough. Yeah, so my dad has always been like the king of one-liners. He just has a way just of saying things just so very short, but eloquently, but extremely punchy. And there was a time when I was a kid, I was playing too many video games and watching too much TV. And he just walks into the room one day and he goes, Stephen... Every hour you spend playing video games, you're building, building someone else's, else's dream. dream. When he presented the story, I kind of just thought it in the concept of, what do I want to do? What are my dreams? But you're also literally building someone else's dream, which is building the world that they want to see, that they want to exist in. It's pretty interesting that he had the, you know, what is the purpose of the content? When you can kind of add to that another layer, what dream is this building? What world is this content trying to perpetuate? Mm. And is that a world that you actually want to live in? I love it when we bring full circle. <laughs> Have we done it, y'all? I think we did it. All right. Well, we've done it, y'all. As always, um, follow us on all all the socials. We're at the Perfect Podcast on basically everything: Twitter, Instagram, um, and we have a Patreon. If you subscribe right now, we would love it. Help us build our dream. Help us build our help us build our dream. Our dream is your dream. <laughs> uh, and also, uh, coming this we're summer, we're different from the others. We are. We're not like the other pods. Uh, this summer, uh, we'll be releasing all the like you know long form interviews. Um, so, if you want access to that, it'll be on our Patreon, and probably even later than that, it'll be on our YouTube. Just because we really want you want to have access to all the access we have, um, and we will see you next week. Bye-bye. Peace.